Welcome to Loop Me In, the podcast community for parents and carers on raising children with disabilities. Join presenters Dr. Lisa Interligi and Christine Christopoulos and their guests on sharing experiences, information, and support ideas to help children with disabilities flourish. Loop Me In is brought to you weekly on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, to name a few. You can learn more, connect with the Loop Me In community, and listen to more episodes on our website, loop-me-in.com.au. Okay, Laura O'Reilly. Thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to talk to you and about um, your experience, particularly in setting up multiple um, companies, I understand, uh, Fighting Chance and Jigsaw, and I understand you've got accommodation too in Sydney, Um, and really to understand your journey and what you offer and and what advice you can give to our um, podcast listeners. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Laura, your brother and yourself um, started higher up. I think it might have been 10 years ago now. Yeah, so Jordy and I, we started Fighting Chance 10 years ago, so it's a bit confusing. We've started all these different things and um, there's names of businesses going everywhere. But, yeah, we started Fighting Chance 10 years ago, um, very much directly as a consequence of seeing our um, myself and my brother Jordy, we're the, the, the co-founders of our organisations, um, we had a brother called Shane who had cerebral palsy. So the work that we started with Fighting Chance in 2011 was very much a direct response to seeing Shane's, particularly his post-school experience and the lead up to, to leaving school and how stressful and hard that was for our family and, and really scary of what, what was going to happen next for Shane and then watching all of that kind of unfold. And so that really was the genesis of seeing if we could jump in and um, start an organisation and try and make a difference in the space. How old were you when you did that? I was, I think, 23, I think, 24, something like that. So just, yeah, had just finished my undergraduate studies. Actually, in the UK, I was um, studying in England and came came home, was planning to, about to start my law degree, Was had all these plans to be a lawyer, had been my goal since I was very young. Um, and Geordie, my brother, was studying occupational therapy. Um, and, then, and then Shane, the youngest of the three of us, he, he went through, he started to, you know, get to 18, 19, approaching the end of school. Um, and he actually finished school and went into a traditional day program type structure. Shane had um, Shane had a profound physical disability and a moderate intellectual disability, so needed assistance with, with all, all of the various um, occupations of daily life. And, um, and yeah, he, he, but he really wanted to work. He was very computer literate, very tech savvy, loved the internet long before I really even understood what it was all about. Um, and he wanted to work, but I think because he had a profound disability, society really was saying, nope, you know, you're not going to work. You're definitely going into the community participation stream post-school. Um, he joined the day program doing kind of recreational activities that he would fall asleep in his wheelchair from boredom. Um, and then he'd come home and he'd go into his room and he had, you know, ran a little um, a website providing antivirus software advice because that was one of his passions, antivirus software. Um, so yeah. I guess from, from our perspective, it was just watching this process um, as young adults ourselves, um, it, watching all of Shane's, uh, you know, abilities and interests and potential and the potential that he had as a young adult to contribute meaningfully to society and to the economy, um, watching society say, no, no, you've, you've got it. You've got a disability. You've got a profound disability. That means that for you, there's day programs, you know, and we just felt like 
that's nonsense, you know, and it's so unfair and it's such a waste of his abilities and talents. So watch, you know, watch, watching the process crush the spirit out of him. Um, we just so, yeah, we just thought very young people, very naive, no idea what we're doing, but we thought, well, let's just jump in and see if we can um, have an impact. And that was really the start of Fighting Chance and our social enterprises and then higher up a bit later on. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing organisation and we're, Lisa and I are at the same um, position at the moment. Our, both our boys are 21 and they're in a day program and we kind of feel the same, like is this all there is for them and do we just leave them there or is there potential for them to be somewhere else? Mm. Um, I was going to ask you what what are the challenges that you're facing when you're going? So explain to us what Fighting Chance is, like what do you do? there right sure so so fighting chance very much based in Shane's experience fighting chances I guess vision is a world in which people with disability are fully included that's that's the vision that's very straightforward right like Shane had every right to to work and contribute to the economy to be participating in society to be living independently that was a whole other thing which we can talk about a bit later um and we just saw society was like, nope, 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 you can't, you know, this is a little box for you, that's it. And we just, we just, like, we just, like I said, saw how crushing that was for him. And so, so Fighting Chance's mission is about, is about creating in Australia a world in which people are fully included. The way that we actually do, um, we, we achieve our mission or we work towards our mission is by creating social businesses. Um, I believe really passionately that people with disability don't, need charity or like benevolent like niceness people need an opportunity people need to go and it's businesses that create that so we work through business so what fighting chance does is we identify a problem so that might be a lack of employment opportunities great there's a problem let's create a business that will trade um earn its own money earn its own revenue but trade in order to solve that problem and what fighting chance does is we kind of incubate that little fledgling idea grow it up support it um and hopefully get to the point that a little bit like a child leaving home that our social businesses that we start under the fighting chance umbrella eventually get to the point that they you know you're good to go you're a really well set up functioning business solving a problem in the community you go and succeed and meanwhile we go back to the drawing board of like what's the next problem so so I guess it's sort of a I guess it's sort of an, an incubator I guess of of yeah of, of social businesses that um, that moves the dial. So to date, we've started four social businesses, um, Avenue and Jigsaw being, I guess, the, the most established, I would call them teenagers in the sort of baby to adult analogy. They're kind of, Jigsaw is quite, Jigsaw is probably, um, which we've just opened in Melbourne actually, is is, is the, the most well-developed and is fairly close to being kind of spun out on its own, um, Avenue the second. And then we've got two little baby social enterprises. Um, our accommodation business is is um, just kind of getting getting some traction. And then we've got like a life planning social enterprise called Ready, which is very much in development. So, um, and I guess, you know, maybe if we talk again in three years' time, all of those will be out the door and there'll be another four on the table. Um, it really is sort of a conveyor belt of, of ideas and businesses, but, but critically businesses that, create a new opportunity or an opportunity for inclusion for the community. That's that's what we do. And how do you, like, um, I think that um, any of parents, particularly leaving school or, you know, contemplating uh, their child leaving that education setting, whatever that is, um, you know, um, having an idea of the capability of um, their child to go to whatever setting it is how do you know how do you know 
like how do you know their potential? And, I, and that's a dumb, might sound a dumb question to ask for somebody who's done these amazing things and saw that potential in your brother. Um, but sometimes um, you're kind of really protective when you're a parent. How do you, how do you see it? What, what, do you, what would you tell parents to look for? Mm, it's a really good question. Mm. Um, I mean, I think one of the things I would say is that, um, well, firstly, I guess starting from uh, what I believe passionately, what I've seen is that every single person can work without exception. I've not seen any single exception to that. Um, and, I, and I've also seen that it's really important for the vast majority of people's you know, self-worth and happiness to be contributing and to be giving, you know, I think I think it's a really essential part of like our humanity to be able to not just receive but to give and, and working and contributing is really important to that. Um, and in my experience, absolutely every single person can do that. And I can maybe tell some stories that flush that out. But, um, you know, we within our social enterprise avenue, we support people with very profound and severe disability to be able to work in a way that's, that works for them. And I can, yeah, like I said, talk about that more. But um, so I think that's the starting point. So I don't know if, if people need to, like, I guess this sort of notion of, like, you know, you need to look and you're com- kind of comparing to sort of the, you know, the typical able board. Like we live in a society where... It, things are set up that if you can work the same way that a typical able-bodied person can work, if you can be that kind of 50th percentile, you're good. But if you're not, then, you know, it's other. And I guess our mission is about saying that's a nonsense dichotomy, right? Like it, like society is full of diversity. That's fabulous. Everyone should be able to participate equally as aligns to their abilities and skills. For us, um, for us, the question, so we, we run two social enterprises in the workspace, Avenue and Jigsaw, and I'll just touch very briefly on the difference. Um, Jigsaw is is designed for people whose goal is mainstream employment, who wants to work a nine-to-five, you know, okay. 25 per hour, dollar per hour job. Jigsaw is designed for that cohort. So how Jigsaw, Jigsaw is a business, um, as I mentioned, just opened in Melbourne recently. Um, Jigsaw trades we have over 100 corporate and government clients doing um, digitization and data management work and then we um, engage people with disability in three processes within that business the first is a training function that the guys come in as trainees and they're not they're not paid at this point they're they are actually paying us with the NDIS funding but they spend usually about a year training in the business building up work skills in that in that in, um, main, just business setting the second step is then transition to a paid training where we pay the the guys for their work at a board wage and people get kind of usually about a year to two years of paid work experience on their CV. And then the third step is then to transition out into mainstream employment and we support that process once someone's all trained up and they've had a a paid job on their CV to support that transition out. Um, So that's what Jigsaw does. The other enterprise is Avenue. Avenue very much was, was the first thing we did. It was built around my brother Shane person with profound disability, Avenue uses um, self-employment, micro-enterprise, um, the, the sharing economy to create opportunities for people to work really flexibly. So to give an example of that, um, we've got a, a participant um, at Avenue, team member at Avenue, um, who has got a very profound physical disability, nonverbal. He has a lot of seizures, for example. So most people meeting this young guy would say, oh, you can't, you know, you can't work. We say nonsense. Everybody can work. What's this young man's ability? What's his, what's his strength? And he loves 
turns out going for walks around a local lake. So it's like fabulous. Let's see if there's any dogs that need to go for a walk and tie the dog to his chair and the, the support worker can push him along. But this young man can get paid for taking the dog for a walk. So I guess the point is, back to what I said before, everyone can work. The question mm-hmm. is just where 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 is it best? And, and the way that I always say to families when they're thinking of that with our different models is, it's really if your person's goal is mainstream employment, then jigsaw is the better pathway. But if your person, if your person's um, maybe not aiming for mainstream employment, as Shane wouldn't have done, but is aiming for much more of a tailored, individualized way of working, then Avenue is the better solution. So it's really that question. It's about where do you fit, um, not which is the best support model. I guess is probably a better way of saying that, rather than like can you or can't you? Because with in the right play, in the right supports, everybody can. So answer the question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that that's fantastic. Really, is it's kind of matching um, mm. capability and passion. Yes. With, uh, with employment opportunities, this job matching is fantastic. Totally, and that's that's exactly what Avenue does. Avenue is a really strength based thing. That's you know, who cares what you can't do? Not interested. What can you do? You know, you like going for a drive fabulous do you want to register on you know delivery and do deliveries you know you like to walk as I mentioned before great let's do dog walking you know you you you're really into fashion and you really like colors and textures great let's start a you know social enterprise importing product and selling it so I guess the point is that if we kind of what avenue does I guess is like invert the the traditional parent traditionally it's like there's a job that needs to be doing find someone who can do a job avenue inverts that and says what can you do great let's t- work out how we commercialize that um and yeah i've yet to i mean there's um there's only a very small group of people who really can't you know generally because they don't you know they don't like it they prefer to do something more recreational or whatever um but it's very yeah that that model can work for everybody for sure and I think um, you've just answered a question I had earlier because I was talking to Lisa about um, Matthew and Louis coming to Jigsaw now that you, you are in Melbourne. And I said to Lisa, you know, I don't know if Matthew would be able to cope doing something like that, but then you've already covered that in the avenue. So hopefully that will come to Melbourne as well because Matthew, I guess, is in the middle of that. Like he's capable of some things, perhaps not capable of being independent um, and I think that's fantastic that you've been able to look at both sides of that. Well, and that's, I mean, that's the other thing is that like with Shane, it was like at 18, I and mean, this is pre-NDIS, right? But with Shane, it was like, okay, school's finishing, you're either community participation funding or transition to work funding. And that just, and then you go, you get the funding and you go into that and then you're there for the rest of your life and then you die, right? Like that's how it was before. Yeah. And that's how it was. Yeah. And um, how how we how we think of it is like no, it's a spectrum, right? Like people can start in Avenue and do that and build some skills for a year, and then they transition to Jigsaw and build some skills. I mean, we've had one uh, actually at um, Higher Up, which is another whole another one of my businesses. But um, you know, we, there's a, the guy that works at Higher Up now who started in Avenue, did a few years in Avenue, then went to Jigsaw, and now is working um, a couple of days a week and just a standard role at Higher Up. So you know, we all flex and transition through our lives. Um, and so I guess the idea of having multiple things that we do is like you find, you know, your space that works for you best now, and but it's not final, right? Like you can, you know, people's goals and, you know, where they want to be can evolve. So, um, and I, you know, at the moment we have Avenue and Jigsaw in the employment space, got about four other ideas of kind of business models that um, that could be created that hopefully, like I mentioned before, we can eventually get to, to, to execute on because it has to be lots of choice, 
for people to, you know, find the, the thing that suits them the best. It can't, like at the moment, this sort of one-size-fits-all-day program model with very same, same type of activities that everybody does, and it's, um, in my view, it's not, it's not good enough. How do you prepare um, your clients or your, um, your people um, to, to work? And what are the things that you do in your training program? Do you mean with Avenue or Jigsaw or both? Or? Both, yeah. Yeah, so I think the, I mean, the, the first place to answer that is probably Jigsaw because Jigsaw is a training program, training people for mainstream employment. So um, at Jigsaw, we have a curriculum, I guess you'd call it, of 20 employment competencies. Um, Jigsaw is of itself a business. So it, like I mentioned before, it does digital um, document management, digitization work and data management work. Um, we always say we're not training anybody to be really good at, any of those processes um same my first job was in a cafe you know I don't you know just like it's not about that it's about a generic type of work where people can learn generic work skills so that those 20 competencies that I mentioned before that are in the kind of curriculum they're things like time management you know um dealing with conflict communication reporting to a boss like all those generic skills that people have to um have to have to kind of attain to be able to you know, really thrive in the workplace. And often we see people, because people with disability have very low expectations from when they're young, coupled with then not, you know, going on the schoolwork experience, coupled with not getting the, you know, the, the cafe job when they're 16. Like, so people often get to the point of going for their real job without having had those opportunities to kind of build those skills. So Jigsaw is about kind of creating the environment um, and the, with the curriculum that we have, um, of supporting people to attain those skills. That's part of how we train the, the guys. The other part of it is, is yeah, the work experience. Like I'm a really big believer, I guess, in my personality that you just learn on the job. Um, you know, I, um, I did a law degree. I could never be a lawyer, right? Like, I, you know, you have to go and actually do it to really learn how to do it. Um, if, if I, you know, we weren't equipped for my law degree and tried to do anything in the law, I'd, you know, um, be a disaster. So my point is that, that second step of our jigsaw process of, you know, you do a training in those 20 competencies, but then you go and you actually have a job and you actually get paid and you actually have to set up super and you actually have the pressure of being required to perform and you actually have to, you know, do all these things in real life. Um, I think that's actually the most fertile part of the process for people. Um, and funnily enough is the big piece that's most missing from the kind of current status quo system where there's lots of training that happens but not very much practical experience. Um, um, so, yeah, I think that's the, other, that's the other big component of like how we prepare the, the guys to then be ready for the, the final step of the jigsaw journey of, of going out there. Um, on the avenue side, you know, we don't really do much to prepare people. Like I said, it's much more based on who are you, what are your skills and abilities, fabulous that's all you need you know you don't need to change like you're all good um but just bring what you love and bring what you can do bring bring your strengths and we will then you know wrap that into into a kind of a, a um a way of a commercial outlet for, the, for those strengths so um yeah again different models different different ways of working and also, Laura, how have people's attitudes changed over the years? Because I know your mum probably bringing up a child with a disability, it's very different for her to see the comparison from then to what's going on now in the community. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my mum tells unbelievable stories. Like Shane, my brother, was born, I think, 1989, right? So extremely recent. Um, and my mum tells stories of like in the early 90s of my grandma saying, oh, you know, um, 
I guess when Shane got his diagnosis and stuff that, well, you know, what you do with kids like Shane is, you know, send him to the Blue Mountains, you know, there's places to send, like, and it's like, that was the 90s. Like, that is yeah. to me. So I think in that regard, lots of things have obviously changed, you know, for the better. Fabulous. Um, having said that, you know, mum's um, telling me stories of, like, you know, taking Shane to primary schools in Canberra in the, in the 90s and, you know, the, the kids with disability would just sit by the window and watch the able-bodied kids play at recess, that kind of stuff. And I guess in some regards, actually, we probably haven't changed that much um, in terms of inclusion that as we should have done, right? Like yeah. um, people are still, I mean, admittedly, I, I would be surprised if there's any schools doing that these days. But my point is that we still haven't fully, you know, Shane still left school not that long ago and was, you know, was told he wasn't going to be able to work or do anything. So I guess but I think this is where, you know, for me and my brother Jordan, this is where our view is, okay, well, if it doesn't exist, let's build it, you know. If it, if it isn't there for Shane, then we're going to do it. Like we're, we're not just going to go, oh, well, you know, the thing, the world that it, that should exist doesn't yet exist, boo-hoo. We're going we're gonna to put our shoulders to the grindstone and try and build it and that's, um, that's definitely, I think, that's my personal kind of what, what I want to do with my life is um, build the world that I wish had been there when, when Shane left school. So Shane, Shane actually has shaped you, you and your brother in, in your lives. What is it that you think, beyond being obviously very um, determined and um, very creative and innovative, what, what sort of things as a, as a sibling do you think having a, a brother like Shane gave you? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. I'll get really emotional about it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I remember looking as a, like a younger child and um, as a teenager, you know, I remember there were really hard aspects of being a sibling with a, a disability, especially Shane was the youngest in the family. So, you know, there's lots of, like I remember, you know, coming home from school when I was like eight or whatever and there'd be no one home because my parents were at therapy with Shane or like there was a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, of I guess stuff that, you know, at the time it felt like we were missing out on. But with the benefit of hindsight, looking back on it, it's just have the being Shane's sister is the most extraordinary honor of my whole life, and has shaped me like emotional. Um, she, like shaped me more than anything, any other relationship in my life, and um, and I just he, he just gave me the um, he gave me the opportunity to see in a world and see a. Um, things that were happening to people that were unjust that I would never have been able to see if it wasn't for him. So I'm just so grateful for, you know, be, I guess being able to see through his his eyes. And um, and I guess, yeah, I, I, I have the great honour now of doing work that I, you know, that, that, that I hope makes a contribution and that's all because of Shane. So, yeah, I'm... Um, I'm enormously grateful to him. He he sadly he died quite. A, he he died um, about six months after we started. Um, after we started all of this work. So sorry, that was my phone. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, he died six months after we started all of this work. So, um, he didn't get to sort of see it all come to fruition. But there's been a, a number of times where we've been, you know, an inch from a disaster or an inch from, you know financial collapse or whatever and some miraculous thing has happened it's happened multiple times and I just think oh, okay that's 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 shame there for us. yeah yeah absolutely he's a part of the journey with you yeah for sure mm. yeah because I think um Lisa and I both have 
older children and I've got a younger one and I I feel the same. My daughter became a speech pathologist based on the same idea as you. You know, he gave her that um, growing up with a special needs uh, brother obviously has its challenges, but she found a career in doing some, giving something back right. to that community. So, yeah, um, well done to you and your brother because it's amazing what you've both done for people with a disability. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, we um, we, we we love it. We're so, I mean, it's such an honour. It's such an honour to get to go to work every day and not be working, you know, be, and be and be impacting people. And, you know, at this point at scale, um, Finding Chance supports about a thousand people, and we've opened now in um, in Brisbane and in Melbourne, and, and we'll be opening in the ACT and and uh, in Adelaide fairly soon. And I mean, higher up, higher up's a whole nother kettle of fish. Higher up supports, you know, um, over a hundred thousand people, you know, um, are registered on the platform, support workers and people with disability at this point. So, yeah, it's um, it's kind of kind of nuts to what from where it started to where I think where it's gone um but yeah again that's for me that's that's my bro watching over and, and helping things to grow and I think with higher up too it sort of changed the way we saw carers I know it did for myself um because I I always thought of a carer as someone that was like me like you know my age group coming over and looking after Matthew and then when I jumped on your website many many years ago I thought oh okay well like I can choose someone that likes to play soccer with Matthew, hang out at the movies. I can actually pick someone that will suit his personality and they'll probably be around the same age as him. Right. Definitely changed the way we looked at carers. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, that I mean, again, that was just Shane. Like we just saw in Shane's life when in the old days of like home care and whatever when you had no choice and, you know, the government would just send someone to you. Um, when you opened the door and it was like a, a young you know, male with like a souped up car in the driveway or like someone who, you know, mentioned in the first 10 minutes they like computers or whatever, you're like, fabulous. Like Shane's going to, you know, have the greatest Saturday or whatever versus when it was someone who, you know, just was not a, not his age demographic or whatever and you just think, oh, God, like what are they going to do all day, you know? Just, yeah. So just saw the massive difference that um, the right support worker has on a person right and mm. um and so so the thing with higher up is all about like okay great how can we put the power of choice into people's hands to choose the right supports for them that's that's what it's all about um yeah how do you prepare employers for, you know you're talking about jigsaw and transitioning you know the people who are participating in jigsaw to mm. full-time work when they've um finished their training mm. um how do you prepare employers and what would you say to them if um you were talking to them about taking people on it's a really interesting question because i think that the current status quo system of disability employment services the agencies sort of sending people to to employment and then as we you know as as many of your listeners would probably know that though there being a 90 percent failure rate in the first 12 months of people who are placed into employment retaining a job you know, there's a whole host of issues wrong with that, but one of them is the damage that does to the confidence of employers who have, you know, yeah. I guess maybe they're, they're not aware of disability and they've, like, gone out on a limb, so to speak, and then it all falls apart because it hasn't been set up right. Um, and then, and then you know, those people are burnt and then they're, you know, out of the system. Like, you know, that for me was one of the things that was, I mean, there's many issues to resolve, but that was one of them. And so I guess in our model how we've resolved that is, is that that middle piece of the model that I mentioned that you know, tr- training is the first element. The second element is 
we employ our guys at award wage to do work. And in order to, to do that, we have clients, employers who give us work to do on like a contract basis, I guess. Um, you know, they outsource work to us that we do in our location. But that relationship, you know, that over time those employees seeing high quality work coming back or them coming out and having a meeting with us and talking to our guys and getting to know people or building personal relationships. But critically, seeing high quality work being delivered is for me, a really important aspect of the model to set the scene for, you know, then that transition because employees have had the chance to to really get to know the cohort and what they can do and, you know, and all that stuff. So it just makes it much more. By the time it's, you know, the, the employees really skilled and able to transition and we say, well, you know, why don't you take your work back in-house and take the employee with you type thing? You know, it's just a much easier conversation. Um, but, I mean, that's only part of it. We do also transition um, our our trainees to jobs with employees that we haven't worked with in that way. And so I guess it's just about, um, you know, providing long-term support and assistance with the relationship. And, and, um, and again, it's a bit, you know, the DES model has a, has a timeline on, on how much support is provided. You know, we support, provide support ongoing and just really to equip the employer, have the conversations about what they need to know, um, helping being really present while the person's going to get transitioning in just, all of that helped to to support it through. But I mean, as I mentioned before, um, the rates of, of of failure in the traditional disability employment service model, like I mentioned, about ninety percent within twelve months. Um, our model is um, at this point, I believe. I haven't had an update in the you know last few weeks, but um, last time I I heard, a hundred percent of our employees who we've transitioned have have stayed in their job wow. um, I think it shows that if you, you know if you prepare people properly to start with then you don't mm-hmm. actually need to do that much on the on the you know then mm-hmm. the transition sort of manages itself right but um but it's that piece of really setting people up for success with the long you know deep work that has to happen to get someone job ready genuinely job ready if you do that well then it, the rest of it kind of flows okay well, look, I think um, we are so grateful that you exist in the world and we're so grateful to Shane, actually, because um, maybe this wouldn't exist because if it wasn't for him. And, right. you know, for us, it's really heartening to see um, there that there's opportunities um, for our sons but also young adults coming out of our school and having the opportunity to have employment. And as you said, feeling like they're contributing is a basic human right, I think. And mm. so it's fantastic. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We thank you so much, Laura. It's been really fun. Thank you for, uh, thank you. And I, I'm i going to go back to the team with, uh, we've got to get Avenue to Melbourne faster. Let's let's put our foot Bring it to, yes, that's what I was just going to say. Hurry up because Matthew will be the first one there. <laughs> I'm on it. I am on it. Okay. Thanks, Laura. Thank Thanks, you. Laura. Thanks for being part of the Loop Me In community today and joining our conversation on raising children with disabilities. Join us for the next episode on some of your favorite platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you would like to support us, please recommend the Loop Me In podcast to your network of parents, carers, and providers. If you would like us to cover a topic or invite a guest to chat, please email us at contact at loop-me-in.com.au or go to our website at loop-me-in.com. 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com.au. If you've got any feedback, please let us know so we can improve and cover issues you want. And of course, if anything in the podcast today has raised concerns for you, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 4636 or Lifeline on 13 111 4.